Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Multi-Site Masters podcast. This is the podcast series that explores the art of leading and growing multi-site businesses, especially in the hospitality and retail sectors. So my name is Lee Sheldon and I'll be your host for today's episode. I'm also co-founder of the MMU Training and Development Consultancy, in which we're dedicated to helping managers achieve consistent operational excellence, leading to sustained superior performance. Now, in this episode of the Multisite Masters, we're going to be exploring what happens when a chief operations officer, managing director, somebody senior takes a role in an organization that is in, frankly, in distress. Uh, This can be obviously a challenging time for the the people in the organization, as well as the individual taking on the role. But it's even perhaps more so when that business is uh, one that's in the public profile, certainly has been in the news. And in particular, um, in this episode, we're going to be talking to the new managing director of Patisserie Valerie in the UK, Paolo Peretti. I think what's going to be interesting as we listen to the episode is the cool and calmness that Paolo approaches, the challenges um, and the opportunities that he and the team that now run the business see. And uh, the simple process in many respects of looking at people, brand and the, uh, the, the physical infrastructure, the physical shops themselves and how they build a strategy for turnaround around these three key elements. So welcome back to another episode of the Multisite Masters. I'm very pleased to have our guest today. Now, he's a very competitive guy and he's probably going to be a little bit disappointed to know he's actually the second person to be on the podcast for a second time. Welcome, Paolo. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. Now, Paolo Peretti was with us before. And at that point, Paolo was working for an organisation called Vital Ingredient. You'll better find our episode that we did with Paolo in our back catalogue. But our topic today is very different because Paolo has recently become Managing Director of Patisserie Valerie. Now, we're not going to go into the background of Pat Val today, but we know, and anyone knowing the history of Patisserie Valley, we know it's had a troubled and a difficult 12 months, but it now has new owners, it has new direction, and a new managing director in Paolo. So our focus on this episode will be to look at how does someone at a senior level, coming into a challenging business, look afresh at that business, and think, how do we turn that around? How do we grasp new opportunities? How do we take what worked for us in the past and make it work for us in the future by doing things differently? So, Paolo, what's been it, what's it been like joining Patisserie Valley? And maybe give us a little bit of background to yourself, a little potted history. Yeah, okay. So, um, I've been doing food retail for 30 years, which is scary in itself. Um, mostly high street stuff, although operated on railway stations and, and airports. Um, a whole host of different brands, Pranamanje, Starbucks, Burger King, um, so, so just a range of brands and across a range of sectors, so I've operated clubs, operated uh, coffee outlets, I've operated little news kiosks, so quite a, a wide variety. I've also uh, operated outside of the UK, mainly North Africa and the Middle East. Um, big, big businesses such as SSP, which is a big corporation, and then smaller businesses such as Leon, when they only had four units, back in Greenland with 20 units, and now sort of a medium-sized business, Pat Val, with, with 80 units. So that's kind of a, a, a potted history. Um, I've been with them just coming up to five months, mm-hmm. and it's been a uh, my feet haven't really touched the ground in those five months. <laughs> been a bit of a roller coaster to say the least, um, and but but very exciting and, and very fast moving. So whenever you join, or certainly in my experience, you join a distressed business. Time time is not your friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to understand what's gotten wrong pretty quickly, come up 
with some sustainable solutions to fix what's wrong, and then you need to execute those solutions. So we've just reached the stage now where we're in the sort of execution phase of, of that little sequence. So can I take you back to that first phase of understanding what's going wrong and analysing? What are some of the approaches, the models, the, the, the methodologies you've applied in this business and in others that have helped you get through that process quite quickly? Um, I, I always tend to start with the people element, whether it's the people that work for us or the, or the people that dine with us. So I spent the first three weeks on almost like an extended road trip. Um, I spent time with every single ops manager, met as many managers and team members as I could, sat and talked to as many customers as I could, delved right the way through all the customer insight stuff that we'd done, whether it was uh, customer forums or just the customer insights that they'd gathered, and then went through all the uh, mystery shopper stuff that the um, Causeway Capital who bought the business did as part of their due diligence. Mm -hmm. So I spent yeah, probably a month just understanding the brand through other people's eyes, which I think gave me a real insight into the sort of the, the nuts and bolts of it all. So that was the, the sort of first part. Alongside that, I spent quite a bit of time trying to get into the model, the financials. That wasn't easy because it was fairly well documented about the financial situation. Uh, the entire finance team had gone and it had all been outsourced and coming out of administration, there was a lot of uh, a lot of things that just weren't in place. And, and it, this was a business that wasn't doing stock takes, wasn't issuing P&Ls, didn't have weekly numbers, didn't have a cost of goods. So a lot of the um, a lot of the financial stuff that you would take for granted in, in a relatively large sized business just wasn't there. Mm. So trying to do that analysis from a financial perspective, you know, what's my average spend, what's my basket size, if someone buys a cake, what do they buy with it? We didn't have any of that data. So a lot of it ended up being quite anecdotal. So that was my sort of first sort of month or so in terms of trying to understand the, the problems. From that, I came up with almost kind of a two-tiered approach. One that said, okay, there's some pretty basic fundamentals here to, to fix. And again, that sort of splits into process and people. And then there's a much higher level, okay, what, what's gone wrong with the brand as such? Um, so the first thing I did once I sort of figured out, you know, and understood the business and then figured out what I felt the main problems were, was then start to work on the, the people side and the, and the basics processes side. So it's taken me five months to completely rebuild the ops team, hire a whole swathe of people in, in the office and just bring in some real expertise to help me on this journey because there just wasn't the, the bandwidth to, to do all the things we need to do within the current structure. And what's the roles and, and functions missing for you? Or was it just about individual expertise and talent? No, we didn't have a HR function. We didn't have a training well, function. Okay. <laughs> Little things like that. Um, so we, yeah, we had a payroll person uh, who sort of doubled <laughs> as our HR person. Um, so no, no training, no, no learning and development. Uh, there was an ops piece. There was no operational support. There was no brand standard review or audit function. Uh, so there was whole swathes of things that you would again, you know, in a sort of 80, 90 store business take for granted that yeah. just didn't exist. You mentioned you started with the people, talking to customers, talking to the staff. What was the reaction from the staff in particular coming in, it's a distressed business, you coming in listening to some of the challenges? What were the consistent themes that you were hearing from the team members, the managers, about their concerns and their hopes for the business? Um, a lot of them, um, no one had really spoken to them much at all. There was, no, there was nothing in terms of internal comms. As I say, there was no P&Ls and no weekly numbers. So a lot of the managers didn't really... It was a complete shock to them when the business uh, had its problems in October and then we went into administration, I mean, a complete shock. 
Uh, they thought they'd do really, really well. They're only 20 stores a year. So there was that element of, okay, now we're a bit unsure because no one's been talking to us. All these things have happened. Mm. We didn't even know. So there was a lot of mistrust and a lot of people that felt really... Uh, like they'd be treated really badly, they didn't know what was going on. There was that element. There was an element of people could see the shops were getting quieter. You know, you, you, you don't need a PL to tell you that you have fewer customers. Um, and then we're seeing decisions made that they felt hadn't been thought through properly. For example, um, there was a decision made quite quickly to take French fries out of the business and replace them with crisps. So you are buying a eight pound, nine pound crock monsieur and you sort of have chips with it, you have crisps with it. Now, whose decision that was doesn't really matter, but, but staff are looking at that and going, our customers are telling us they think we're daft, and, and yeah. we think it's daft, and why is nobody listening? Why, why are they doing this kind of stuff? So I think there was a real sense that, I suppose to sum it up, that the staff felt a real disconnect between themselves and leaders in the business. And this isn't to point fingers, this is literally what people were saying. Um, I remember going into to a store, introducing myself to the manager. He said, oh, lovely to meet you. We'll probably never see you again. I said, okay, well, <laughs> why, 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 why you that quickly? We never see, you know, we never see anyone from, from the office. And yeah, yeah. I do lots of um, unannounced trips at weekends uh, just to go and see what the business is doing. And I remember going to one of the stores in, in Glasgow and the manager had a heart attack and said, you know, what are you doing here? Mm. It, it's Saturday, you know, you're the MD, well, why are you in my shop? So there was an awful lot of, of that. I, and I have to say, uh, Paolo is um, a prolific blogger, and does a lot, not, not in terms of the amount of blogs he does, but in mm. terms of regularly. And the amount of times that you're talking on your blogs about your visits to your restaurants, your stores, at weekends, evenings, it's not uh, warn all of the managers and Pat Val. This is not just something Pat uh, does for the first couple of months. He's constantly out there when the business needs operators and senior leaders to be seeing it at weekends and evenings. So what were the customers telling you when you were having your chats with them? Um, they, they felt that, um, you know, there, there were a little bunch, for sure, and, and, you know, they'd kind of rallied around the business when the first problems came along, so that was fantastic. Um, a lot of it, I think, was through sheer nostalgia for, for the good old days, because I think a lot of them felt that quality had slipped, um, they could see the stores getting progressively shabbier, they could see that uh, some of the dishes that were going onto the menu weren't as good as the ones that they were replacing. Mm-hmm. Um, they hadn't really seen, I mean, a lot of customers that, you know, that going regularly could see that things were slowly drifting. And I think a lot of customers were saying that it's not as good as it used to be. You know, if you sort of distill all that down, that was a general message I was getting yeah. when I talked to people. They still liked the brand, they were so loyal to it, they loved the staff. Um, but it, it wasn't as good as it used to be. Right. It's okay. So the, a sense of um, concern, a bit of cynicism from the team members, a sense of shock from what you were yeah. saying that they thought the business was in a very different place than it was. Uh, perhaps a little bit of skepticism creeping in about, oh, are you going to be here five minutes? We never really see it. Customers wanting to be loyal, but almost saying, give us a reason to be loyal. Mm. It's you, you let standards slip. The products aren't as good. Maybe pricing might have been an issue, but there was a sense of there was a demand to want to come, but give us a reason to come. You've done your financial analysis, as you said. You looked at some of the key data that was you felt was lacking. You so say you couldn't find average spend, for example, and some of the other key metrics you'd expect. So at that point in the journey, where are you? You've done your people. You've got your financial analysis. You're beginning to formulate your plan. Yeah. So we've got a team in place that can deliver it. I mean, we've put within the sort of first five to six weeks, I, I put together 
a plan that kind of again ran sort of two work streams in parallel what do we need to do for, for the brand what do we need to do from a process operational point of view so the people the, the last uh, piece of the people jigsaw is the head of people mm -hmm. who joins us in a week's time oh, and, and, and we're there um, we restructured the ops team and, and brought various people in there in and, and they're working um, the plan itself was formulated and then presented to the team in uh, to the management team uh, we did a, a, a big sort of management day in Birmingham not that long ago lots of presentations so really sort of made a real effort to engage the managers and talk to them about the future direction and it was a really good day because we had every function up there whether it was marketing uh, whoever just talking about future plans the direction what we wanted to do with the business got the managers to sample some of the new food talked to them about our plans in general and I think it was really good because that, that got a lot of buy-in and that was an important sort of milestone uh, for me, certainly, to sort of get the managers on board of where, what we were trying to do. Um, so team in place, managers relatively engaged, certainly more informed than they were. Um, then we had to put in a lot of the processes. So we've had to put in a, a stock control system. Uh, we've done a lot of the, put a lot of the reports in that were missing. Uh, we had the sort of first p reviews. We've got some just a couple of, uh, our first p reviews was about a month ago. And we now have pretty robust weekly numbers. We have some pretty good trading data around what sells, what doesn't sell. And we also, uh, was quite importantly from a brand point of view, the first thing we did was do a very brief menu revamp, which we did before we had an NPD manager in place, um, just because we felt we needed to. And that started to take some of the issues that we felt, A, weren't good enough quality, and B, didn't fit in the brand, and replacing the things that we did, and I think, the key thing that we've done around the brand is to try and understand you know what 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 made it famous what was it famous for in the first place why did people go there and if you go back in in time back to 1926 it was a belgian patisserie that 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 was it that was its appeal it was a sweet treat it was a you know it was, a, it was an ex, it was an experience it was a special day out and, and and in the early days it did all of those things as time wore on and and there was you know 160 of them um, that became progressively less special so one of the key decisions we made around the brand is to say well we're a patisserie so we want to focus on that market and that particular niche um, so that then influenced all the decisions we made around the brand the look and feel of the brand the menu uh, and where we want to take it so th those were the sort of things that we did pretty early on and did you feel internally there was clarity about what a patisserie actually should be in, in the UK, what it should be, the, the values you should have, the quality of the product, or did you think that was a real challenge that people had very different interpretations? It, it was a huge challenge. I mean, people would say, you know, there was a frozen lasagna that we had on the menu, which which, which wasn't great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I said, oh, you can't take that off, we sell loads. Okay, so how many did you sell a day? And then they'd look at you blankly, and then you go back and look, and they've never had the data. And it's yeah. like, you know, you're selling two a day. I mean, this isn't loads, and it's not very nice. And, and I think that the key, I think the, the thing that really brought that home to you is if you look at the performance of their new stores, year two was generally half as good as year one, mm. which to me suggested that people, you know, came in with all the glitz and glamour of a new opening, they, they came, they saw, they weren't that keen, and yeah, they didn't come back, back yeah. um, So, you know, it, and that was, it was an interesting conversation, certainly with the team, so look, guys, I appreciate that you think that we're losing customers by not selling lasagnas or we've made the, the slices smaller and, and better quality and, and that you know that's had a bit of resistance but we need to take this business back into being 
what it was originally, not this all things to all people that it tried to be. Mm-hmm. You know, we had like brasserie menus and we were trying to do pies and, and, and steaks and things like that. And it, it, it didn't fit. Mm-hmm. You know, it got to a point where people were thinking, I, I don't know who you are, what you are, and yeah. why I would come here. And then you don't have the, the, the expertise in terms of the kitchen staff, you don't have the equipment in the kitchen, you're, you're adding more things to a menu that you're not geared up to do properly, mm-hmm. and that just becomes self-defeating. I had the, uh, the pleasure of attending the conference that Paolo uh, referred to a month or so ago, and, and two things struck out for me about people. One was literally the length of service of so many of the managers, so there's a real loyalty to the brand. Certainly a desire to see it succeed, obviously I'm sure for their own reasons of course, but equally a genuine desire to see this brand fly again. But I, I, this may be a controversial thing to say, but I have been, I've had some clients where the operator and the marketing team are not exactly on the same page, should we say. I've heard things that they're, they're the enemy, they're the profit protection department, profit prevention department. The lady from marketing, when she presented, she got a round of applause several times, and there was a real sense of we're actually bringing the brand back to what we believe it to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, it sense to me that from an employee perspective, you hit all of the right buttons in the terms of the getting it back to being, this is what a patisserie is, and this is what it should be. Out goes a lasagna, in comes butter back into the pastry again, which was a, a moment I seem to remember that yeah. got a big round of applause. <laughs> the butter's back. The butter's back, yes. Uh, no, I think that's a, it, it, it was a really good point. And I think... It, it's great when you have people who've been there a long time because they can remember what the good old days were like. Yeah. Um, and you know they they and I spent a lot of time talking to some very long-serving people that date back to the days of when the Scalzo brothers owned it. So we're talking you know 10, 15 years ago. Right. And you know I used to I used to, my first question was always what was good about this then? And, mm. you know, cakes were fresh and the cakes were nice and the bakeries were closer by and it was really indulgent and really special. So. And I think having those people then seeing what we were trying to do, uh, and I think the important thing, again, for my first sort of month engaged with everybody, because the business plan was built largely on their feedback, they were kind of bought into a certain extent already. You know, we're, we're really taking what you've told us and we're trying to do something with it. Mm. So they, you know, they were pleased to see that we were listening finally, which then means that when we want to try and execute this, they are far more motivated than if it were, you know, if it was a case of, okay, a new group of people have come in, they're going to tell us what we're going to do, whether we like it or not, and off we go. So I think that, that was an important piece. And, and that was how, I think that's why they were so receptive on the day and, and subsequently, because, you know, we, we didn't pull our points in terms of how hard this was going to be, but it was basically, well, you told us, along with your customers, what you thought the problems were, and most of our solutions are based on the problems that you've identified. Yeah. I didn't tell you this actually, Paolo, but I think two of the managers said to me during the lunch break, um, God, he listened to our moans. And they were saying, you know, we were there whinging at him. And afterwards we thought, oh God, maybe we shouldn't have said all that. But actually, and this was during your sort of induction three or four weeks out there, they had sensed that you'd listened, you'd heard and you'd taken action. You weren't promising the earth, but you were promising um, you were on a journey and this is where you really were painting that picture for them. So you've spoken about the three buckets, if you like, the people, the process and the brand. Let's just go back to each one of those in turn, if we may. Just in terms of the brand, what are some of the things you think, again, if you were going into a business, if I'm listening to this and I'm taking over a business that may be distressing, what are some of the things that I should be thinking about from a brand perspective? I think the, the first one is, is, is where is your 
place within the market, what, why, why, why would people come to you? Mm. Uh, and, and, and you might partly answer that by why did they used to come to you? But if it's a relatively new brand, you know, where is your place in the market? What differentiates you from the competition? What's that reason to visit? You know, if you want to keep the language simple. So I think that's always the, the, the first thing. Um, I think then it's what kind of experience are you trying to provide the customer? Are you, you know, is it purely a sort of routine refueling? Or is it something a bit more experiential? Now, what are you trying to achieve and then does your brand achieve it? And I think finally then it's that third piece. Um, and I think there's a brand, uh, Nando's do this exceptionally well. It's looking at your customer touch points. So where does your customer interact with the brand? And that's everything from the music to the quality of the napkins to the weight of the, uh, of the cutlery. All the, all the ways in which your customer interacts with the brand and saying, well, you know, are, are these as, as good as they can be? You know, are they leaving the customer wowed or is the customer coming away disappointed? You know, is the music too loud or too soft or is it not warm enough or too cold? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all of these little things that individually might not be a big deal, but make a whole. Yeah. So it's almost like breaking your brand down and saying, okay, every time a customer tracks with everything, you know, if you're going to put a ketchup bottle on a table, is it a clean ketchup bottle? Is it a full ketchup bottle? Is it Heinz ketchup or cheap ketchup? And it's just little things yeah. that build into a, into a whole. It, the, the the idea of the customer journey and understanding yeah. all of those touch points it's amazing I worked for a brand not too long ago um, outside of the UK and they never heard of the idea of the customer journey and when we sort of just talked about the concept of moments of truth and just you know everything speaks and they all mm. it adds up to that okay that uh, overall experience you're right I think Nando's is a brand that constantly gets it right but also keeps looking and saying do we need to ensure do we need better quality napkins or yeah. whatever it may be. Um, so that there's three great points to about the brand. One of the points in your strategy was about looking after our shops. Now, again, I imagine most people coming into a brand in distress don't have a very large capex budget to go and renovate every single store. So, how do you look at looking after the physical infrastructure of the stores? What's your approach? So, there's there's, there's two elements of that. One is to get the kit to work, and again, for, for whatever reason. Uh, again, there was all sorts of financial problems. A lot of the kit just wasn't very well maintained. So we very quickly went out and got some people that we felt, from a maintenance perspective, that could come and do a good job. Yeah. Put together a huge list of things that we felt needed fixing, from the you know the legal health food safety stuff to the kind of okay, we need the oven to fix and the fridge needs to work. And I'm systematically working our way through that list. So we're not there yet, but the estate's in a lot better state from you know, kit actually working than, than it was six months ago. So again, that's engaged the staff because suddenly, okay, my freeze, my freeze doesn't work. It's a nightmare to actually my fridge works. Yeah. Um, and they're taking out bits of broken kit and we've had a bit of a clear out. So we've done that and we're doing all of the uh, due diligence stuff, you know, pack tests, all these kind of things, which again, in all of the chaos, maybe lapsed a little bit. So that's one side of it, and that's just again getting the, the basics in place. Mm-hmm. You, you, you can't serve customers well in a brand where you're, you know, fairly hot drink led if your coffee machine doesn't work properly. And you have a three group machine that only has one group working. Uh, <laughs> probably not a great, great start. Yeah. So we've done all of that, or doing all of that. Now we're just at the stage, in fact, we're talking to landlords at the moment in terms of what the new part of our looks like, mm-hmm. and you know, the new look and feel, the font's different, the color palette's different. Uh, the displays are different. So all the things that we've been working on for the last five or six months in terms of the brand, and the idea now is to sort of do three or four quite big refurbs, two or three small refurbs, and, and assess the impact of that before yeah. deciding what we do next. And is that for you about taking in you know, a refurb 
it might be a counter design and saying that's something we can roll out and cascade or is it the overall look and feel once we've done our three or four once we've nailed it that whole look and feel gets cascaded everywhere so we're not doing piecemeal we'll do we refurbish a certain amount of the estate per year i think there's it's probably option a where we're going to we'll do two or three pretty big refurbs and then really understand which are the key elements that you know, the difference that makes the difference, mm. uh, and then we'll take those because you can't, you know, seventy nine stores. You need a fairly large capex budget to redo all of them, and I don't think, you know, and you're not going to do that in over the life of this particular investment, I don't think. But you can then take the individual pieces and say, okay, well, what what what's the difference? You know, whether it's just looking at, you know, if you paint, you've got painted walls in the exterior of the shop. What what colour should that be? What can you do with the awnings? What can you do with the signage? That already will give you quite a big impact in terms of drawing people to the store. So it's just understanding the key elements of that mm -hmm. and then saying how many stores could roll that out to. Yeah. Now, we could probably spend another four hours talking about processes, and I would imagine it was like almost where do you start with the lack of some of the processes that you said was uh, missing in, yeah. in the business. But from let's just use the context of the, the multi-site leader. So the operations managers, you would call them in the business, coming into the store. What would you say needed to change in the way they work, the processes that they used or didn't use, that you would say would be, in the first six months, you need to get these things in place? I know you talked about reviews, so that might be one of your answers here. I guess. Um, it's interesting because they... Um their whole approach to a, to a site visit, there, there was no structure at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were almost going in and having a cup of coffee with the manager. Uh, and then the second thing is that they were working several levels down. So they, they weren't being multi-site managers. They were being super operators, if I remember my terminology right. <laughs> Professor Muller will love you, yes. Exactly <laughs> right. Um, so they were, they were almost doing the manager's jobs for them. So staff aren't turning up, so the ops manager's ringing around trying to find staff or pulling a shift or something they've run out of, of, of a particular product that someone's not ordered it so they're on the phone trying to order it and, and the previous regime had them approving everything so you put a, an order into one of the suppliers and the ultimate has to go through and approve it I mean they're probably spending two hours a day approving you know orders for 10 shops yeah. so what they were attempting to do was be this sort of almost like a, the, the, a second store manager as opposed to the area manager operation manager multi-site manager whatever you want to call it and a lot of them were falling into that rookie's trap of, okay, I now run 10 stores as opposed to leading a team of 10 people. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was the, probably the biggest problem. And that stemmed from no one had told them any difference. Yep. That's you know, so a lot of these guys had been promoted up um, through the ranks with no development, no coaching, not even a job description. Mm -hmm. you know, so a lot of them were saying, well, okay, what, what, what should I do? Um, so <laughs> the first process was to say, well, let's let's have a look at a, a week in the life of an ops manager, and then let's sort of break that down into its component parts and say, well, okay, you need to, you know, uh, what's your shop visit like? How do you structure that? How do you get the most impact? Um, team meetings, they weren't having them. Well, you need to have team meetings. How do you get the most from that? Yeah. And then you start to get into the, okay, you know, how do I then get the best from my people? And we haven't quite reached that last stage, but at the moment, we at least have ops managers who are a little bit more structured. Um, we've brought some really good guys in who are mentoring some of the newer guys. <laughs> There's been quite a bit of a churn. We started from a team of 15 and now down to a team of eight. Um, but we've just put some structure in there and just sort of said, okay, here's a very basic framework within which you can start to you know, make a difference in your stores. And then you just explain to them what making a difference means. Because again, for them, you know, good day's work is, oh, we were two staff down, I found two staff. 
as opposed to, well, I need to recruit the right people, they need to be trained properly, motivated, so actually you can try to avoid them not pulling zickies, and if they do, we've got enough people cross-trained to cover. There were, there were just, there were, there were sort of point-sticking blasters on shops as opposed to thinking more fundamentally about what are the problems and what are the sustainable solutions to those problems. Uh, I think it's about 13 years ago now that I first met Paolo. And one of the things that I remember was uh, challenges we had in the business we were working at the time was this kind of silo mentality that existed between operations, marketing, HR. Generally, it's a challenge many businesses have. When you've been uh, trying to put structure into the operations team, how have the other functions been made aware? Are they understanding why you're doing it? Or do they see the link, the value in it? Or do you think, is that sort of a challenge for you? Well, in part of it was relatively easy because there really weren't any other functions. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the solution. Don't have yeah, any other functions. functions, it's fine. Then, then it's, no, I think um, um, one of the very first things we did uh, with the very first ops meeting was, was take them around our main bakery because uh, some of these guys have been here for years and they've never visited it. In fact, never been to the office. So there's been a genuine and concerted attempt to try and bring everybody together and kind of say that we're all on the same team here, guys. And from things like we now have a twice a week proper update that comes from the central ops team and and the marketing department. So we've made it much more engaging. It's um, you know it's not it's not a little simple email. It's quite a nice presentation, and all communication from everybody in the office goes either Monday or Thursdays. Right. It's a little while to discipline them because before it was just random emails. And, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that thing that I sent out wasn't quite right. Here's another one. And oh no, here's another one. And it's ridiculous. I mean, the, the, the managers were spending more time reading emails than they were doing anything else. So um, the ops meetings that my head of ops runs have guests from the various functions uh, regularly. Um, and uh, a lot of the projects that we do, certainly my central team, constantly have other functions in at an early stage whenever we're doing something. So it's making sure that we're aligned with everything. It's still early days, but I think the, the genuine attempt to work with people and support other functions has, has you know, has, had an impact on them. You know, key one, for example, with, with marketing was that you know we we, we didn't have any uh, way or, or any formal way of how you put the point of sale up, and mm-hmm. there was no standards around what point of sale should be up and what time it should be put up and taken down. So we did quite a bit of work based on, on what they'd like us to do to support them in that. And again, that's been well received because I think you know, okay, if we launch uh, something, a new product, and we're trying to publicise it. We know we know we've got an ops team that are going to really you know if we say look this a board needs to go out at eleven o'clock and come in at three o'clock we know there's an ops team that actually try to do that or before it was the case of yeah sure whatever and then whether it happened or not was that was a pure luck. <laughs> okay, so we've talked a little bit about brand, we've talked a little bit about process, particularly from the ops perspective. People now you mentioned that ahead of people was about to start in the business, which is fantastic news. You mentioned that you there wasn't really an LD offer in any shape or form prior. So obviously these are things you're putting in place. But again, what do you think are the priorities from a people perspective for your business for the next sort of, three to six months? I'm recruiting the right people. So when I joined um, each ops manager did their own recruitment and um, they did their own adverts, uh, with no supervision whatsoever. Um, there uh, were no behaviours, uh, no job descriptions. So you were literally hiring whoever you hired to whatever standard you felt was appropriate um, with no uniformity across the business. So we now have a recruitment person, and we have job descriptions. 
and all of the sourcing of CVs and advertising is done centrally so we can right. ensure consistency. So that's part one. And, and we're very fortunate that our, our, our staff turnover is, is actually quite low, which is, considering all the trouble that the business has, is, is, is fantastic. Mm. Um, but recruiting the right people, whether it's managers or whether it's staff, it is a number one priority. And obviously, as you go on this journey, not everyone is going to come on that journey with you. And mm. there's a few managers that just sort of said, no, this isn't for us. Uh, and we, we expected that. So having a professional recruiter in the business was probably my first priority. Alongside that is now building a, uh, so every, so we worked out what our career path is, and we're busy pulling together a very simple training plan for each, you know, so if you're going to go from team member to shift runner, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. What behaviours you need to exhibit? What skills you need to learn? Uh, what does that even look like from a training perspective? How do we select you? How do we train you? How do we sign you off? Um, and we are, because it's quite a, not particularly big estate, but it's quite spread out. So mm. we're using technology, a system called Flow, that's yeah, Flow Hospitality, really, yeah. really good platform mm -hmm. for sort of the e-learning that we're doing. Mm. So, um, and our head of training is busy putting that together. And we didn't even have an induction for people. Nothing. I mean, wow. Yeah, so uh, it's those basics in place, and most of that will be in place by Christmas. So at the moment, we're still a little bit, you know, we're getting better people into the business. We still haven't got the training side of it right. Mm. I mean, now when we launch new products, we're doing how-to cards and we're training stuff in, again, which, which wasn't happening before. So we've made some some steps, but we're still a long way off from... from I mean, we, we don't even have a steps of service. So there's no set, no sense of what the customer journey should look like. Right, so that's whole service style piece that you kind yeah. of saying, know what your customer experience is going to be like. It's yeah, we, 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 our staff don't. Right. Um, uh, now, some uh, would argue that actually you shouldn't have a steps of service. What you should focus on is being clear about the outcomes you want of the experience, but not detail it in a kind of, dare I say, a McDonald's transaction. Mm. You say this, then you say this, then you say this. I sense you're not talking about giving people a script and learn lines uh, by root, so to speak. Just being able to give people a sense of this is our expectations at each level. To your earlier point about that energy, put a ketchup bottle down, you make sure it's clean. It's wiped, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, when I say steps of service, it, it's providing it back to that framework. So, for example, when a customer comes to one of our stores, at the moment, whether they sit themselves down, whether they're shown to a table, or whether they just loiter around until someone comes to them, that's not specified. Mm -hmm. So things like that, I think you need to be relatively prescriptive about. So, you know, if you go to most restaurants, they have a prescribed way of... At least the, the greeting isn't scripted, but but the expectation is that the they will launch you fairly quickly. Mm. They will give you a menu and accompany you to a table. There's a way of doing it. Yeah. So that broad, what should our customer expect and how do we make that consistent? That that's what interests me. Yeah. What you then say to your customer, how do you upsell them? I don't want people parroting that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, I don't want you know that. Uh, there's a very famous. Um, large news agents that try this upselling where you need to buy an apple and would you like a bar of chocolate with that? Uh, you know, because they've been told to offer a bar of chocolate to what everybody. What do you mean? Yeah. I could possibly say. So, uh, good for them, but that's not, you know, our customers are looking for, for humans. So I think it's back to, as I was saying with the optimizers, it's that framework mm. within which you operate. You know, I've operated Burger King, it's absolutely mandated to the last degree. That, that's fine, it works in that environment, but, but this is a very different environment, so I don't mm. think that would work. Makes perfect sense. Um, I worked for a brand called The Coffee Club recently, and they're based in Dubai, and uh, we did an exercise for them similar to this, 
And that whole idea of each stage of the journey, when we're at our best, what would it look and sound like? And getting the team managers to feed in what, what good should look like um, was an incredibly engaging activity. But it, at the end of it, not only did we have some great ideas, but it was that sense of this hasn't been mandated from above. This has been our sense of we, we've got pride and this mm. is the kind of service we want to give, whether that's physical items or whether it's the way we talk to our people. But we never want to make it scripted and make it part of a, uh, just phrases that people say, power of fashion. It's an interesting point, actually, that because one of the first things we did was put a program in for our window displays, which um, we didn't have. And, and the way we did it was have a little competition across stores, so who, who has the best window? Oh, and it was a store in York. And, and so we went to York and got the guys that did the window, and they helped us put the program together, and now that's put across the business. And I think service, we, we are broadly doing the same thing. You know, where are we giving great service? Yeah. Um, what what what's that best practice, and how do we bundle that into what the customer journey looks like? And I think it, so. It's largely going to come from picking the best bits from the stores, which is again say what we did with the window, and it works. That works really well because it's kind of like, well, this is the best of what you guys are doing. We're just going to put it into into a hole and then train it out into the rest of the business. And I think that's much more. Um, engaging than somebody rocking up who's been here five months going right you will do xyz yeah telling some guy that's been here for 10 years it's probably doing it really really well already mm. but no no you can't do that you must do this why well because i said so probably not the most compelling discussion uh, and from an engagement point of view absolutely not Paolo, this has been absolutely fascinating. I'm really grateful for your time today. I mentioned earlier your blog, and if it's okay, I'd love to put a link to one of your blogs in, yep, the, sh in the show notes, uh, because Paolo is very, very uh, keen to share his views on what he's doing, um, uh, whether that be product-led, whether it be people. Actually, it's very people-led, I would say, so it's very much about people. Not naming Jamie, but really no, celebrating no. what people <laughs> do. Should be clear about that. We don't like public. No, before, before the lawyers uh, come on board. But really good, uh, and certainly one of the, I think, full leaders in our industry and where we're following if you're not following him already i'd advise you to do so on linkedin and i think it's on twitter as well on twitter yeah. on linkedin yeah great one to, to do um now the question i always ask you've been asked before which is if you could go back to a young Paolo Peretti, what would you say to him what advice so you've had that question so my question to end in the last 12 months is there anything you'd look back and go i wish i did that differently what would that be uh, it's, it's interesting because I was having a, a sort of semi-similar conversation uh, with the owners of the business and we were sort of looking back at the last five, six months and what would you do differently? And I think um, I think there were some decisions that we probably needed to take a bit quicker than we did uh, and would have probably set us on the, you know, on the path to sort of where we want to be and we probably would have been a couple of months further down the line. So I think there was a few things that we kind of knew we were wrong, but we sort of were waiting for hard data and wait for confirmation and sort of debating on where probably we should have just moved a bit quicker. Mm -hmm. That would be the main thing. It's interesting because I know Paolo, who's uh, one of his heroes, if I can don't mind me saying that, is um, Jack Welsh, uh, obviously a G fame. And one of the things he talks about is this idea of, of having the edge, make a decision. No one likes mm -hmm. to lead with maybe. And sometimes we want the data, we want a bit more data before we make a decision, but sometimes you just need to, to make it, don't you? Brilliant. Thank you again, Paolo. Um, we look forward to having you on. Maybe you'll be the first person to have on for the third time, if that would be. <laughs> that's a challenge. We're all set. Thank you, Paolo. Thank you. So I think you'll agree with me that it was great to have Paolo back and to hear 
about all of the plans and the approach that they've taken at Patisserie Valerie over the last few months. And again, as I said in my intro, I really do like this simplicity of looking at the, the people, the process and the brand, uh, but always starting with the people, making sure in terms of the right people in the right roles, but also that they have the right support. Uh, Paolo, as I mentioned in the interview, is a prolific blogger, so please don't hesitate. I will put in the show notes a link to his uh, his blogs, so feel free to follow that up. Equally, if you want to contact Paolo, he is uh, more than happy, I'm sure, to take an email or take a call from you. So we'll put his LinkedIn profile details in there too. So thanks again, Paolo. Thank you, as always, to our producer, Sam Walsh, for putting the episode together. And we look forward to speaking to you soon on the next episode of the Multisite Masters. Take care, everyone.